This is Talking Urology. This Talking Urology Ends Up Conference highlight features Andrew Weichart talking with Associate Professor David Quinn regarding the Keynote 045 trial for advanced urothelial cancer. I'm Associate Professor Andrew Weichart, medical oncologist here in Melbourne, Australia at the ANZ UP, uh, ANZ UP um, session and we're here with Associate Professor David Quinn talking about pembrolizumab in bladder cancer. You presented some interesting data at the um, at the, at the meeting. Can you tell me about the key results from the Keynote study? Sure, so I presented an update on uh, Keynote uh, 045, uh, which is a study that compares an immunotherapy that targets PD-1, pembrolizumab, uh, to chemotherapy with uh, taxanes or vinflunine in the second line after platinum therapy. Uh, and this is an area where we've not had uh, a standard of uh, care in the past, uh, although many drugs have been used. And so the study was designed to compare pembrolizumab, which had shown activity in this setting, uh, to what was a relative choice of standard of care uh, with three different chemotherapy drugs. And what do you think the key take-home messages for the um, practicing oncologists are from this study? Well, I think the, the, the high points of, of the study are that uh, pembrolizumab produces a higher response, uh, better overall survival and less side effects than chemotherapy. So it's not quite a slam dunk, as, as we say in the United States, in that uh, the, the PFS is no different. But this is something we see with immunotherapy drugs. They tend not to produce a great PFS. They produce improvement in terms of survival and overall survival, uh, in terms of response and overall survival. So that's something I've noted in my practice is certainly many patients progress very soon after starting them on immunotherapy. Um, so, so what are the um, clinical parameters that might predict response or, um, or, or, or progression, early progression on these and that came from the study? And I'm not talking about the biomarkers that we might test on tumour tissue, but were there any sort of predictive factors identified in this study? Really, really not. Uh, there wasn't a, a great uh, predictive factor either way. Now, we were testing the biomarkers, but uh, that didn't work out. It wasn't predictive of giving uh, pembrolizumab or, or chemotherapy in one sense or another, which is a bit frustrating. Uh, who's going to progress early? I think we don't know, and it's something that we're really uh, working on. There's also the issue of when patients have progression, do you leave them on therapy, uh, waiting for response after progression can be a very difficult area and I think we've been a little bit tempered by some results that we've seen in this uh, and other studies. Most particularly when we start out and look at the survival in the two curves, uh, there's a slight advantage to chemotherapy in the, in the first uh, two or three months and uh, from that perspective there's uh, an excess death risk in the uh, for, for the patients that got the immunotherapy until it starts to work. So it seems to take a while um, and it would be nice to know who those people were that died early but at this point we, we, we don't know. Uh, and it was a small number of people but uh, these are things that we have to uh, continue to look at. It was also a pattern that we saw in a more recently presented study that has not been published comparing atezolizumab uh, immunotherapy to chemotherapy where there was a slight excess, excess death risk for the people that got the immunotherapy in the first uh, couple of months in that study. 
That was interesting. I suppose you're touching on the Invigor 211 data. And to recap, there's been several um, phase one, phase two trials of single arm um, trials of PD1, PDL1 inhibitors. They all had very similar response rates, and the FDA approved in an accelerated fashion their use in the US. Um, many of us were expecting, given that the pembrolizumab study was positive, that given the response rates were similar in the early trials, the atezolizumab data would be merely confirmatory of what we knew. What do you think about that study and how it changes our thinking about these drugs? Well, I think that uh, uh, the data from Keynote 45, where we have our first level one evidence for immunotherapy in this setting, I think are important and are gonna to lead to approval uh, of uh, pembrolizumab for this indication in many places uh, outside of the US, including Australia and New Zealand and other places. So, and I think we thought that Invigor 211 would uh, confirm the activity of atezolizumab, which we've been using off study in the United States for more than a year, where we see durable responses, good tolerability um, with the drug, and we have a comfort with it. So uh, the Invigor 211 result, uh, which was initially reported via press release as being negative for its primary outcome, uh, came as a bit of a surprise. Um, and the primary measure here was in patients that were uh, PDL1 high. They had a lot of the PDL1 uh, protein in their uh, in their tumor tissue, um, and that was a comparison between the Tezo and the, the chemo, where. Uh, there was not a significant difference in overall survival. The trial was designed so that that was the primary group on which uh, uh, approval might have been given. Um, and then if that was positive, they got to move to the, uh, the less positive patients and then the overall cohort. As it happens, um, the data has been presented by Tom Poles uh, in Europe in the last few weeks, and we've got to look at the the, the other data a little bit uh, a little bit more and the intention to treat study uh, that was the third parameter down which is what we'd normally use as our first parameter was actually positive by by the criteria we'd normally use with a p-value of I think 0.03 so um, it may be that across the whole board there uh, the immunotherapy is still superior and with that drug uh, whereas the biomarker does not tell us what we think it's telling us. And uh, so it's, it's going to be interesting now to see. I think there'll be a, uh, a movement of, of uh, prescription of pembrolizumab into the market, uh, maybe some of the others, and then we'll have to look at subsequent studies uh, for atezolizumab, which I think has activity, but you know, just how much relative to the other uh, four agents, no one can really tell you. Yeah, right. I looked at your data that you presented here on quality of life and the Keynote 045 study, and it was pretty striking that the quality of life seemed to be significantly better in patients treated on the pembrolizumab arm. There's still side effects, of course. Uh, uh, thinking about the atezolizumab in Vigor 211 study, it's been widely described as being negative so far, but looking at the separation of the curves after the median is reached for overall survival, it still does seem to favour, obviously, the immunotherapy arm. And I, I wonder if we compared the quality of life in those two groups as well, whether or not patients would prefer, even if not statistically significant, the immunotherapy over the chemotherapy, cost aside. I think the data that we've seen so far from Invigor 211 suggests that the quality of life is better with the immunotherapy than the chemo. 
Uh, and so um, I think we need to look at this a little more um, before we jump to conclusions and just say it's a negative study. Uh, if it had been truly negative right across the board, I, I, we would have been asking why that's so. Uh, so I think that even if you don't get um, improved response or improved overall survival, patients may prefer a period on immunotherapy um, just because they don't get the side effects. Uh, whether the regulatory bodies and the people that pay for the stuff uh, will subscribe to that, right. I, I, I don't know. And we've still got a lot of sorting out to do uh, in this area. Uh, I think Keynote 45 is very important in that it very much presents a benchmark for us to go forward where we say, okay, we can do better than what we were doing in this area with these new drugs. Uh, and then for the other four agents, and I, I think there might be another three on top of that, uh, in the next year, we've got some big questions to ask uh, about whether they produce uh, differential value, uh, whether they can be dosed differently and more efficiently uh, for similar outcomes. Uh, so we're, we're in a good place, uh, but some of the data is, is a little bit confusing. Uh, most of the data coming out of Keynote uh, 45, I think are very straightforward. When we originally designed the study, there was a thought that uh, PFS might be important. And in fact, if you look at the design of the study, it had co-primary endpoints of progression-free survival and overall survival, uh, but with the uh, really the, the, the preference for overall survival. Right. Can I um, finish up with two clinical scenarios to ask you then? Um, so a, a patient in Australia currently can't access immunotherapy for bladder cancer without self-funding. So I have a 79-year-old woman who presented ECOG 2, maybe even ECOG 3, quite unwell with liver metastases. Um, she couldn't take cisplatin-based chemotherapy, but with some steroids, ECOG 2, very keen for chemotherapy, had two cycles of carboplatin and gemcitabine with a very brief response. But then it's progressing and the family come to me and say, we'd like to self-fund immunotherapy. She now spends most of the time in on a couch or in bed and she's wheeled in in a wheelchair to see me. Her albumin's 20 and she's got liver metastasis. How would you have a discussion about, you know, the benefit of immunotherapy given that her family would have to pay, you know, $6,000 every three weeks for pembrolizumab? So I think that a patient with an ECOG status of three, um, a low albumin and declining performance status is very unlikely to benefit from immunotherapy. Uh, it takes a while for this stuff to, to actually work and get the patient better and I think they have to have an immune system that will help them uh, respond. And what I'd say to them is that I can't work out how they should spend their money. It's, it's something that I can't calculate as an oncologist and I, I think most of us can't do that. But uh, the problem here is that if we look at the subgroup analyses of several of the immunotherapy studies that have been done in, say, melanoma and lung, and they'll come in urothelial cancer, the older patients do not seem to have benefited that much from immunotherapy. So I'd be more inclined to say, okay, in all honesty, if this is my mother or my grandmother, I, I think that I would be trying to do the best palliative care I could right. rather than expending the family fortune, mortgaging the house uh, to, to pay for, um, for you know, 12 weeks of, of uh, immunotherapy. Um, and I think also uh, if that patient uh, qualifies and, and their 
uh, they can get coverage from their insurance, you may have to ask the same question. Uh, just because um, you know the, the, the PBS or Medicare or whatever is paying for it, uh, doesn't mean that we should be any less um, prudent with, with things. And I think for this patient, um, I, I would be trying to get her the best palliative care I can, and I certainly wouldn't give her any more chemotherapy either. Great. So. Just one more question then at the end of the clinical spectrum. A patient of mine in his um, 70s, um, quite fit, sails his boat, goes skiing, uh, quite a wealthy retiree. He developed a metastatic urothelial malignancy arising from his ureters, bulky retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy, didn't want chemotherapy, wanted to self-fund pembrolizumab and embarked on treatment. He's had now nine months of therapy with a fantastic improvement in his quality of life. With a radiological tumour shrinkage, it certainly doesn't meet the criteria for tumour response, um, but his, his tumour measurements haven't changed now for the last six months on therapy. And he's, and he's up to about 12 months on treatment, and he's paying $6,000 every three weeks. Um, what do you think about the duration of therapy in treating patients? You know, I'm not talking about a complete responder, I'm talking about someone who's still got measurable disease. So we, we, don't, we don't actually know, and we don't even know for complete responders. But uh, what we've taken to doing is that where we think the patient's benefited, and this guy's benefited, we will, we will offer them to stop therapy at 12 months. Why 12 months? It's a number. And uh, based on the melanoma and some early lung data, if patients then progress, they'll usually respond again. Now they're responders. They've had a 50% volume fall or a complete response. Um, and so it, it's an area that's evolving. But I would be inclined to say to the patient, look, we're treating her every three weeks. Uh, we can take a break and do a scan in about 12 weeks. And I think we're reasonably safe. If you develop symptoms, we'll have to do it earlier. But there may be things you want to do. Um, and many of the patients go a while after we stop them, uh, even if this, this setting of what we'd call a minor response. Right. Uh, and so, um, and we're just starting to see our patients recurring now after maybe a six month break at earliest, and we're putting them back on, but I don't have any even anecdotal information about uh, restarting them. Their performance status seems to stay pretty, remain pretty good. Uh, and so I think we need to work out whether we can break therapy at that point. It would be lovely to have some clinical trials or even a repository to, uh, to uh, collect the data on these patients. Yeah, I think it's an area that needs um, collaborative research with investigators since the drug companies that so far haven't proved very interested in early discontinuation trials. I think um, SWOG and other alliance trials uh, groups are set up to try and um, meet those that have question, answered those questions? I think what you need to remember is that you're looking at uh, multiple different constituencies for the drug companies. So if they have a situation where we decide to stop a, stop patients in Australia at a year and, and retreat them, uh, whoever's funding, it, funding that drug in Australia, whether it be the PBS or whatever, how will they interpret that, the need to restart after what could be six, nine... 24 months right. uh, and whether they should pay for it again because most often they would consider people to be resistant uh, and so you know just how things are um, uh, are interpreted in different settings uh, can be uh, kind of difficult it is something we need to take on as cooperative groups um, and I think it's something that the public purse 
should be expending for uh, with the help of the companies and hopefully we'll get to that point. We have several studies planned in SWOG uh, to look at this and we're looking for partners and hopefully we can do it with ANZ up and some other people as well. well. That'd be fantastic. Well, thanks a lot, David, for your talk and insight into immunotherapy and bladder cancer. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Talking Urology at ANZ up. Proudly supported by Ibsen.